Please go again to the back of your hymn book, to the Canons of Dort, Second Head of Doctrine. We're going to read Articles 3 and 8. It's found on page 904. 904, that we're going to open God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 21. Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death. This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. And then dropping down to Article 8, the saving effectiveness of Christ's death. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Please open your Bibles now to John chapter 10. I'm going to read the verses 1 through 21. Let us hear the word of the living God, John 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So far, the reading of God's holy word. Please keep it open there and especially focusing on that little verse, verse 11. What is more precious to the believer than the biblical doctrine of the atonement? It is so very important to the Christian faith. To atone is to set things right. It is to make amends for wrongdoing. In ourselves, we are sinners who stand guilty before a holy God. Our relationship with Him is broken. He is holy, we are unholy, and therefore the two can have no fellowship. We cannot atone for our own sins. But by suffering and dying the cursed death of the cross, our Lord Jesus was able to make atonement. By receiving the wrath of the Father and bearing the punishment for sinners, Jesus made atonement. He set things right. That is the wonderful message of Christianity. We say with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in what he said to the Corinthians, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Martin Luther called Christianity a theology of the cross. A theology of the cross. At the cross, Jesus bore the pains of hell and took the curse upon himself. He satisfied the demands of God's justice, thereby saving sinners from the wrath to come. The New Testament is very clear that sinners can approach God only because of the atoning work of Jesus. Without the atonement, we would be hopelessly lost, eternally lost, and condemned. But now, brothers and sisters, if you were to approach Christians from various backgrounds, and if you were to ask them, for whom did Christ die? I think the common answer would be that Christ died for all men, for every human individual. The atonement is universal in extent. 
By this, they do not necessarily mean that all people will be saved, but rather that Christ, in his death, made salvation possible for all, if only they believe. The common response to the question, for whom did Christ die, is that his work was designed by God to atone for the sins of all people. So this afternoon, we want to spend some time considering this question, for whom did Christ die? I would point out to you, first of all, that this question is certainly a controversial one. Of the five points of Calvinism, the doctrine of the atonement is perhaps the most controversial of all. There are some who can accept the doctrine of total depravity. They can accept unconditional election. They can accept irresistible grace and perseverance of the, of the saints. But they cannot agree with a doctrine of limited atonement, or as many Reformed theologians prefer to call it, definite atonement or particular redemption. There are those who call themselves four-point Calvinists. They are willing to affirm four of the five points, but they are not willing to affirm the Calvinistic understanding of the design of the atonement. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, either Christ died for, number one, all the sins of all men, number two, all the sins of some men, or number three, some of the sins of all men. If Christ died for some of the sins of all men, then all men are still left with some sins to atone for, and so no one can be saved. If Christ died for some of the sins of all men, all men will be lost, condemned for those sins that have not been atoned for. Owen says that is clearly false. There are some who are going to be saved, therefore we can eliminate option number three. Then what about option number one? Did Christ die for all the sins of all men? Owen said, if Christ died for all the sins of all men, then why are not all men freed from the punishment of their sins? You say, well, it's because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief, says Owen, is it a sin or not? If it is not, why should they be punished for it? If it is a sin, then it must be among the sins for which Christ died. And then we are brought right back to the question, if Christ died for all the sins of all men, unbelief included, then why are not all men freed from sin? Option number one cannot be true. If Christ truly died for all the sins of all men, then all would be saved. The Bible clearly teaches that that is not the case. Hell is a real place occupied by real people suffering real punishment. The Bible declares that there are some to whom the Lord will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, if option three is false, Christ died for some of the sins of all men, and if option number one is false, Christ died for all the sins of all men, then we are left with option number two, Christ died for all of the sins of some men. Owen said, that's what we believe. Christ suffered for all the sins of the elect. He died for all the sins of his people. He died for all the sins of some men. 
Matthew 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save who? His people from their sins. Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 28, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus will save his people. He gave his life a ransom for money. His blood was shed for many. He gave himself up for the church. He died for all the sins of some men. Brothers and sisters, in the great controversy between the followers of Jacob Arminius and the Synod of Dort, 16, 18, 19, the followers of Arminius asserted that Christ died for all men, but only those who believe in him will be saved. Jesus' work of atonement makes salvation possible and available to all people on the condition that they believe. What this means for Arminians is that Jesus also died for Esau and Judas and for all who end up in hell. Jesus paid for their sins, but because they do not believe, they are eternally damned. One author said that for the Arminian... The atonement is like a universal grab bag. There is a package for everyone, but only some will grab a package. The atonement is like a universal grab bag. There is a package for everyone, but only some will grab a package. The Synod of Dort, on the other hand, declared that Christ died only for the elect, for those who will actually be saved and go to heaven, for those whom the Father had given him. The Senate of Dort declared that the death of God's Son is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. The atonement is unlimited in its power. But while the atonement is unlimited in its power, it is limited in its scope, limited to certain people, a particular number, namely the elect. Now, Historically, Calvinists have usually acknowledged that there is a sense in which the death of Christ benefits all men. A number of years ago, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce pointed out in an address that he gave in Toronto that after the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus commanded his church to bring the gospel to every creature. He said, if there is no other benefit from the death of Christ for the unbelieving world, there is at least this benefit. This is the gospel. This is a gospel age. And those today who have the opportunity to hear the gospel preached are not at this moment in hell. That is a great benefit. They are not at this moment in hell. Boyce also pointed out that there are benefits from the death of Christ that spill over in a secondary sense to all humanity. When Christian people seek to follow after Jesus Christ, 
and by his power try to establish godly homes in which children are raised to know God and the standards of his law and live by that and honor Jesus Christ in all that they do, those benefits spill over into society. One of the great problems of Western society is that today we are losing that kind of impact upon our culture. Our culture is running away from any kind of Christian value or heritage as fast as it can go. And then we are surprised when the calamities of our culture come upon us. What should we think is going to happen when we abandon God? And so we wouldn't for a moment want to deny that there are benefits of the death of Christ for all people, at least in that secondary sense. But while Calvinists have acknowledged that there are benefits from the death of Christ for all men, the death of Christ was specifically designed to redeem the elect and to ensure their salvation. While mankind in general receive some important benefits from Christ's atonement, only the elect are saved. So you can see, brothers and sisters, that the question for whom did Christ die has been and continues to be a rather controversial question. Did Christ offer himself on the cross for every person without exception? Or did he offer himself on the cross specifically for those who were given to him by the Father? Did he die to make salvation possible for all men? Or did he die to ensure the salvation of his elect? When Jesus went to the cross, what did he have in mind? Did he suffer and die to make all men redeemable? Or did he suffer and die to actually redeem those whom the Father had chosen from before the foundation of the world? Well, look with me, please, to the words of our text, John 10, verse 11. Here's a biblical response, which is point number two, a biblical response. Go to John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life or lays down his life for the sheep. Go down to verse 15. Verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 27, drop down there. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, try to focus with me for a moment, if you will, on verse 11. It's a very short verse, and yet there is much that we can glean from it. Notice, first of all, that Jesus referred to himself as what children the good shepherd the good shepherd now for those who were born and raised in jewish homes and instructed from their youth in the old testament scriptures the mention of the word shepherd would have brought to mind many passages from scripture as you hear this word shepherd here this afternoon what passage from the old testament immediately comes to mind Perhaps one of the most well-known portions of Scripture is Psalm 23. It is a passage that is known by believers and unbelievers alike. Children, what do we read at the beginning of Psalm 23? 
the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. The psalm goes on to explain that this shepherd cares for the needs of his sheep so that they lack nothing. The shepherd leads and guides his sheep all the days of their life and brings them at last to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When Jesus said in our text, I am the good shepherd. He was undoubtedly identifying himself with the shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he was using the language of deity. Another Old Testament passage that comes to mind is Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a prophecy, as you probably are well aware, a prophecy of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It speaks of John preparing the way for the Messiah. We read in verse 11 of Isaiah 40, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The shepherd of Isaiah 40 is... Jesus Christ, I am the good shepherd. Furthermore, the Old Testament mentions that the nation of Israel was often led by bad shepherds. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of shepherds who led the sheep astray. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of shepherds who scattered and destroyed the flock. He spoke of shepherds who let the sheep become food for the beasts of the field. In contrast to these unfaithful, worthless, false shepherds, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's not a good shepherd, he is the good shepherd. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were also shepherds, right? Shepherds of God's flock, but they were like the shepherds spoken of by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, shepherds who misled and destroyed the sheep. In contrast to the false shepherds of Jesus' day, he is the good shepherd. Now, what is it that sets Jesus apart from all other shepherds? What is it that sets Jesus apart from all other shepherds? What makes him unique? Well, look at our text again. Our text says, the good shepherd, what? Gives his life, lays down his life for the sheep. Now, it's interesting that Psalm 23, the psalm of the shepherd, follows what? The psalm of the cross. Psalm 22, which we sang a portion of a moment ago, is, a, is the psalm of the cross. Psalm 22 is a very graphic description of the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The first verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the cry of Christ from the cross as he gave his life for the sheep. Psalm 22 goes on to say, They pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 describes the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. And then Psalm 23 begins with the words, The Lord is my 
shepherd. Jesus Christ shed his blood for the sake of his flock, laid down his life for the sheep. John 10, Jesus mentions this four times, doesn't he? In verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18. The hired hand that Jesus speaks of in this chapter runs away and flees when danger threatens. But the good shepherd is so devoted to his sheep that he is willing to give his life for them. Now, congregation, what can we learn from verse 11 specifically about the death of Jesus? What can we learn about his crucifixion? This verse shows us, to begin with, that the death of Jesus Christ was voluntary. Okay? Voluntary. He willingly gave himself to the cross. The Jews, the high priest, Pontius Pilate, and the Roman soldiers did not take his life, but he laid it down of his own accord. In verse 11, Jesus said, the good shepherd gives his life or lays down his Life. And this is even more clearly stated in verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. You see, Jesus did not die at Calvary because he could do nothing to prevent it. He died because he knew that his death was the only way to make atonement for man's sin. He submitted himself to the cross and, and to death willingly so that we, through his death, may have everlasting life. How amazing, how amazing is his love. He willingly gave himself for the ungodly. But our text not only reminds us that his death was voluntary, but it also reminds us that his death was vicarious. His death was vicarious. What does vicarious mean? It means taking the place of another. In his death, Jesus took the place of his sheep. Verse 11 says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For the sheep means in their place. When we say that the death of Christ was vicarious, we are saying that we are guilty before the Lord and deserving of eternal condemnation. But Jesus stood in our place and took our punishment upon himself so that we may be free from God's curse. And then, brothers and sisters, our text not only teaches that the death of Christ was voluntary, and vicarious, but it also teaches us something about the design of the atonement. What do we learn from verse 11 concerning the design? We learn that Jesus did not give his life for the whole world, but rather he gave his life for the sheep. Jesus died for a specific group of people, those whom the Father had given him. He paid the penalty for their sins so that they and they alone may be justified in the sight of God. 
The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is the doctrine of limited atonement, or if you prefer, definite atonement, or particular redemption. For whom did Christ die? He died for his sheep and only for his sheep. Now, I suspect that some of you are thinking to yourself, but pastor, what about those many passages in the New Testament which seem to suggest that Christ died for the world? Certainly there are such passages. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John 3.17, That the world through him might be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. One of the favorite verses of those who reject definite atonement is 1 John 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Don't these passages seem to indicate that Jesus' death was intended for everybody? Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. As John the Baptist stood there on the banks of the Jordan River, he saw Jesus approaching and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. How are we to understand these universalistic passages? How do they fit with the words of our text? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I believe the answer is this. For most of these passages, we need to understand that the writers of the New Testament were emphasizing that the gospel of salvation is not only for Jews, but for people all over the world. Christ died not only for Jews, but for people of every nation throughout the world. There's a children's song that says, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. People of every color, every race and nationality are saved through faith in the crucified Christ. God's plan is not limited to the Jews, but his plan embraces people from all nations. So consider 1 John 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What is John saying here? Is he saying that Christ is a propitiation not only for Christians, but for everybody in the whole world? If that is the case, then clearly everyone will be saved. If Christ satisfied God's demands for every person, then every person will be saved. But as we said earlier, that is certainly not in harmony with other portions of Scripture. What then is John saying? And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I believe that what John is saying is this. Christ is not only a propitiation for our sins, Jewish believers, 
but for God's people throughout the world. Christ's atoning work is not for Jews only. God has chosen his children out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. John is saying our gospel is not a for Jews only gospel. It is a for the world gospel for Jews and Gentiles. John is not saying that Christ died for all men without exception. He is saying Christ died for all men without distinction. The sheep of God come from all parts of the world. He died for the sins of Jews, but he also died for the sins of Australians, Ecuadorians, Canadians, Africans, and so on. The elect are not limited to Israel, but are found throughout the world. So what is the answer to our question, for whom did Christ die? He died for his people, for his sheep. For those whom the Father had given him, he died for his elect from every nation. When you really begin to contemplate that, you come to see that the doctrine of definite atonement or particular redemption is a very comforting doctrine. It's a very comforting doctrine. Why do I say that it's a comforting doctrine? Because Christ did not give his life merely to make salvation possible. He gave his life to actually save his sheep. He did not die to make men redeemable. He actually he died to actually redeem them. In contrast to this, an American megachurch pastor once made the following statement. He said this, listen, when Christ died on the cross, he died for everybody, everybody, everywhere, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. Jesus said that when he was lifted up, he would draw all men to himself, all people, everywhere. Everybody sins on the cross with Jesus. Forgiveness is true for everybody. And then he went on to say this, listen. And this really extends beyond this life. Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of forgiven people God loves, whom Jesus died for. Hell is full of forgiven people whom God loves, whom Jesus died for. The difference is how we choose to live, which story we choose to live in, which version of reality we trust, ours or God's. Did you catch that? Congregation, this megachurch pastor believes that Jesus can die for you, but you can still be lost. The damned in hell were as much an object of Jesus' forgiveness as the saved in heaven. For all those in hell, Jesus died in vain. He loved them and gave himself for them, and yet they ended up in the lake of fire. Heaven is not decisively gained by the blood of Christ, but by human decision. Spurgeon, on the other hand, summarizing his reasons for holding to definite atonement, said this, 
I would rather believe a limited atonement that is efficacious for all men for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that is not efficacious for anybody except the will of men be joined with it. Spurgeon concluded that Christ came into the world not to put men into a savable state, but into a saved state. Jesus did not go to the cross to make men reconcilable. He went to the cross to actually reconcile his people. One of my seminary professors said, it is an atonement that actually atones, a redemption that actually redeems, a ransom that actually sets the prisoner free. It is an atonement that actually atones, a redemption that actually redeems, a ransom that actually sets the prisoner free. The Calvinistic understanding of the atonement is that God sent his son into the world to make the re redemption for the elect certain. Certain. Article 8 of the second hit of doctrine of the canons of Dort says this. Let me read a portion to you once again. It was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father that he should grant them faith, which like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual. And then the article goes on to say, that he should finally present them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. The canons assert that Christ's death secured a full and complete salvation for all the elect. Lorraine Bettner, perhaps you've read his book, his excellent book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. He illustrates the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism regarding the atonement in this way. For Calvinists, the atonement of Christ is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the stream. For the Arminian, it is like a great wide bridge which goes only halfway across. Brothers and sisters, what is better? A narrow bridge that actually does the job or a wide bridge that doesn't accomplish anything at all. What would you prefer? Of course, I trust you would prefer the narrow bridge that actually gets you across. Congregation, Christ did not die to make all men savable. He died to actually save his sheep. That provides wonderful comfort to the believer. Great certainty. Christians can be sure that their sins were paid for at the cross and that they are saved from everlasting judgment. The sheep of God can be confident that they are redeemed, reconciled, and fully pardoned. In Christ, the just demands of a holy God are fully satisfied. He really, really quenched the wrath of God for his sheep. One of the last things that our Lord said 
as he hung from the cross was, it is finished. It is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word, to telestai. That one word contains amazing truths. Here's Spurgeon again. Spurgeon said, it would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. End quote. To tell us it is finished. Jesus paid the price for all the sins of his elect, for all the sins of his sheep. To Telestai. God's justice is fully satisfied. To Telestai, Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. Congregation, how do you know that Jesus died for you? That you are one of his sheep? How do you know that he atoned for your sins? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Have you heard his voice? Are you following him? If so, then you are one of the sheep for which he died. He died in your place, reconciled you to God, redeemed you from the bondage of sin and wickedness. What does this mean for us as parents as we raise our children? It means that we can say to them, Jesus is a wonderful, complete, and all-sufficient Savior. He has said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As our children grow, we can say to them, come to Jesus. Follow him, repent and believe the gospel. Trust that he graciously laid down his life for the sheep. Hear the voice of the good shepherd. He himself said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. We could remind our children of that sixth saying of Jesus from the cross, Tetelestai. What a beautiful word. It is finished. He has done it all. The good shepherd has given his life for the sheep. And the day is coming when he will gather us to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. To tell us I, it is finished. Amen? amen? And amen. Let us pray. Lord, how precious it is to think that our Lord Jesus, by his suffering and death, actually redeemed us, that he didn't die to make us savable, but he died to actually save us. 
We pray, Lord, that the comfort of this would be impressed upon each and every person here. That we may find great confidence in Him and great comfort in that word to tell us die. It is finished. We thank you, Lord, that, that your perfect justice has been satisfied, that your wrath has been propitiated. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself willingly, voluntarily, that no one took your life from you, but you gave it up of your own accord, and that you died for the ungodly. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your death was also vicarious, that as the good shepherd you stood in the place of your sheep and gave yourself, laid down your life for the sheep. We thank you, Lord, that we may have great confidence as we anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus and on that day, we will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing because the death of Jesus fully satisfied. May we come to a, a deeper understanding and a greater, more, a greater appreciation of these things so that, Lord, we would truly fall before you in adoration, in worship, in humility, and unceasing praise. And so, Lord, as we conclude this service, once again we ask that you'll receive the songs that we offer to you as the expression of our hearts. As we sing of the man of sorrows who stood in our place. And fill us, Lord, with true gratitude, profound appreciation for what he accomplished for his sheep. In his name we pray. Amen.